Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus and thank you for the confidence that we can have in your promises and uh, with our relationship uh, with you through Christ. And uh, we ask for your help um, as we live our lives to trust you and to walk by faith and not by sight, and uh, that you would encourage us through your word and help us uh, to lean more heavily on you um, after uh, studying your faithfulness in your word tonight. And I just pray that you would guide us and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Esther 4 in just a moment. Just run through where we're at again. So recall that we're at the end of the Old Testament. Um, Coming out of the captivity and now in this restoration time. And we'll skip that one. And we start out studying Ezra, the first part of Ezra, where the first uh, group left uh, Persia and headed to uh, Israel to rebuild the temple and try to start up the kingdom again. And now we jumped into Esther, kind of in the middle of that story, uh, to help us see what was going on back in Persia, and to follow the timeline chronologically. And so as we study Esther, we see the story where uh, all the Jews in the Persian Empire, which would have included the ones that went back, um, were going to be killed. They were going to be put to death um, by their neighbors through Haman's work. And so that's what we'll be looking at. And then uh, I think it's at the end of this month, so in November we'll be back in Ezra, uh, finishing those last couple chapters. So tonight we'll be in Esther 4, uh, 1 through 5, 14. So it's chapters 4 and 5. Would have been an easier way to say that. Uh, And as we jump into this, I want you to think of if there's ever been a time where you got news that just kind of broke you. It brought you uh, to your knees. It it was overwhelming and uh, kind of more than you could bear, and it seemed like there's no way that this could be solved. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments. Uh, you know, maybe it was a loved one who got in a car accident or was sick or had passed away even unexpectedly or expectedly. Um, we, we have moments in our lives where we get really scary or bad news uh, that that brings us to a very low point. And that's where we find Mordecai in Esther chapter 4. So he's uh, working in Persia, and he gets the news with uh, the rest of Persia uh, of the plan that Haman has hatched uh, to have all the Jews killed. And so as we jump into chapter 4, we'll see his desperation, his, uh, his sadness, um, we, we also see his, uh, I think, belief in God's providence and sovereignty to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis. So God promised Abraham that his seed, uh, whoever blessed his seed would be blessed, and whoever cursed his seed would be cursed. And so I think 
uh, Mordecai is calling that to mind here and remembering that if, if Haman wants to curse us, then God's going to curse him. And so he's uh, believing that help will arise from somewhere. And it's really interesting. I don't know fully what he looked like, but he looked so bad that Esther sent him clothes to wear. Um, so when he heard this news, he was mourning, he tore his clothes, and I can't remember fully if he puts on, yeah, sackcloth and ashes in the midst of the city, and he's just kind of like in the middle of the city crying, and Esther hears about it and sends him clothes, and he won't put them on. And so I think part of that is his recognition that it's not just about him, that this is bigger, this is a whole nation of Israel thing that a set of clothes for me won't solve everybody dying. So, yeah. No, that's another really interesting thing about this chapter is the, the queen and her attendants have no idea the happenings of the kingdom. So Mordecai actually sends her a copy of the edict and that's how she finds out. So that's kind of a fascinating thing that those within the castle or, you know, within the royal family not having any idea what's going on in the nation. So that is a, something we're not super familiar with, uh, like royal families and stuff. So I don't know. Let's jump into chapter four here. So there's kind of two parts that we'll look at tonight. Uh, the beginning of chapter 4 and then the end of 4 into chapter 5. So the first part here is that Mordecai and es Esther discuss the situation through courier. So it's really interesting. They don't ever see each other during this correspondence. They just send messages back and forth. And it's not text messages or even email. It's a guy named, it's like Hathath or something like that. And he seems like a very special guy. He, he definitely, there it is, Hathak. Um, he definitely knows that Esther is a Jew based on the way they talk throughout this discussion. And he's the, one, he's the attendant that uh, the king assigned to Esther. And she trusts him, Mordecai trusts him. And so some have speculated that he is a Jew as well, perhaps. Um, but he's at least very loyal to Esther and willing to uh, carry these messages back and forth. So let's jump in and we'll read through this. So the first part we'll see is that Mordecai and the Jews weep. So starting in chapter 4, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So I don't know if you can imagine yourself doing that. Like, standing up in church and just, like, <laughs> crying in agony. I don't know if this was a normal thing that they did back then. I think mourning publicly was probably more normal um, in that culture. Uh, but it's still, it's a very public thing. And this, this whole thing is very public, that all these people are going to be put to death, and this edict is public. And so he's mourning publicly. Uh, Verse 2, he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. This is an interesting note. This comes up again in Nehemiah 2.2, 2, 
when Nehemiah is seen by the king uh, Xerxes and it, there's something about like not looking sad in front of the king in Persia. Like the king doesn't want to see your sadness. So we should just turn over there and read. It's actually backwards in your Bible. Uh, Nehemiah 2.2 Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. So here Nehemiah is. The king sees him sad and he's worried. He's, he's fearful for his safety um, in front of the king. So, uh, and so back in Esther 4, Mordecai, he knows I should not go into the palace um, on the palace grounds clothed in sackcloth. So I don't know if that's a just a Persian thing, or if that was a normal royalty thing that don't upset the king, don't uh, bring your sadness to him. And I don't know, it's just, it doesn't sound like a very good king to distance himself in that way, that he wouldn't permit individuals who are brokenhearted to come and, and talk to him. So that was the way they did it. So now back in Esther chapter 4, uh, looking at verse 3, And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so they're just, they're kind of losing it. They, they see that this is a death sentence for them, their families, uh, their whole nation, and... Uh, it's just fascinating. I wonder if back in Jerusalem, if they, I'm sure they received news of this as well, but you can imagine being that distanced from the, the people who are making this decision and having that come down, you know, filter down to you um, back in Israel. It would just be a wild, like, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> like, we had permission to come back and do this, and now the Persian government is just going to allow anyone to wipe us out. And I, you know, we don't have their account there of what, how they responded, but I would think they would have responded in faith as well that God brought us back as a remnant to start up the kingdom again. And so he'll be faithful, kind of like Mordecai will say in a minute, to raise up someone or provide a way for us to be saved. So that's kind of the first little snippet. Does anyone have any thoughts or questions about one through three? Yeah, Dale. I think it wasn't um, when we went back to Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer. Yes. And so for him to be sad, especially after he just sampled a drink. Oh, sure. Would yeah. probably be a cause for yeah. the king to be concerned. Nehemiah, why are you sad? Yeah. And then are you sick? When you have someone like a king. If they have somebody who's sad, they're probably their first instinct is to think, oh, they're going to want something from me. Sure. Right. I they're... mean, that, you get to see that often, and so people avoid that kind of situation. Yep. Good. That might be part of it. Right. Yeah, I, there's, a, there's several historical books about Persia and that culture, and I just don't know a ton about that. So oh, that's fine. Someone should go read it all and tell us what they find out. <laughs> yeah, Linda. I was just going to say this, this environment 
I think we can picture a little better just because of the news of the last since Sunday. Right. Um, a, a, a tremendous amount of grief that is just overwhelming. Right. Yeah, and it's. Um, yeah, there's a there's a interesting parallel that's going on right now in many ways to what we read in Esther. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that some later, that God is faithful to Israel. And uh, yeah, that's good. All right, let's go on to verse four. So Esther sends clothing to Mordecai. So uh, looking at verse four, so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. So here he is, he's out, you know, essentially screaming in the, you know, city uh, near the, the king's gate. And he's not wearing much. And I don't know if Esther is just seeking to help him, to provide that for him, or if she's embarrassed. Uh, that he's doing that. So she's still ignorant. She doesn't realize the edict of the king. So all she knows is that her uncle is kind of losing it in the streets and uh, wants to help him. And so news travels to her about that. And then what's going to happen here is we've already had a tension building as we hear of Haman's plan and then it kind of coming to out publicly to everybody. And so as we read here, this the rubber band of tension is like going to slowly keep eking out and it's going to be like just about to snap and then we're going to stop for today. <laughs> so just fair warning um, that we're going like right to the edge of the climax and then stopping. Yeah, but it's super fun and it's helpful to see that you know, we're not reading this for the first time. We know the end of the story. But as someone reading this for the first time, even those people would know that the people of Israel are still going. And so they would have had a hint that God provided a way to save them. Uh, so our next section is Mordecai shares the decree of destruction uh, with Esther and asks her to intercede. So you're missing a word there. Um... So she hasn't heard about this, and so Mordecai is going to send her a copy. Uh, let's start reading in verse 5. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So again, she doesn't know yet. She's, she sends her attendant to go figure it out, uh, come back with uh, more information about why Mordecai is acting this way. So in verse 6, So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Uh, so yeah, Mordecai, 
he realizes Esther doesn't know about it, and so he sends uh, information. And he actually has more information than probably what was public knowledge. So he even knows the amount that Haman promised to pay into the treasuries of the king. So he knows uh, more than you know, what the average person would know. And so remember again, he worked in the king's gate. He heard a lot of what people talked about um, amongst themselves there. Uh, recall that he heard about the plot to kill the king. And so he, he knows more uh, than most people. And so he, he shares that as well. And um, I can't remember how much it was, but it's a lot of money. And that's concerning to him that Haman is that bent on destroying them. Uh, the other thing to point out is in verse 8, right at the end there, uh, he sends this me message with Hathak, and he wants Esther to plead before him, the king, for her people. So right there, if Hathak didn't know that she was a Jew, now he should know. He should, he should understand that. And he still helps. And so, uh, in a sense, he shows more loyalty to Esther than he does to the king. And so we don't know fully why that is, but she had gained his loyalty um, even to work against an edict that the king had put forth. Um, so Esther came and told uh, Esther everything, so now she knows. Uh, and then in our next section, we see Esther reminds Mordecai of the king's one law. So it's not his one law, but it's the law that's on her mind. It's the law that if she appears before the king without being asked for, uh, that's not good. That's not good for people. Uh, the king was free to kill anybody, but he uh, would often kill people who would come before him unannounced. And uh, it was a bad idea to do that. Um, so it says that it's to his inner court. So we're not sure if this is like his normal like courtroom space, or if this is like more of his private chambers that she's appearing before him. Um, probably more of like his private chambers. She's the queen, she's his wife, but you have to remember that he's a polygamist and he has a harem, and she's gonna mention that she hasn't seen him in 30 days. So she's one of you know many women that he has, and she's fearful uh, that if she just shows up after not seeing him in 30 days. She doesn't know if that's because he's busy or if he doesn't love her anymore or, you know, who knows what's going on in her mind of, should I show up before the king unannounced? This seems like a bad time because we haven't talked in a month. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, let's read through those verses. Uh, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. <clears throat> so you can hear the, the tenor in her voice that she's, you know, at a minimum nervous, at a maximum uh, horrified to present herself to the king unannounced. And so this is part of that great tension that's building is, first of all, she's afraid to appear to the king, 
And then beyond that, once she appears before him, she doesn't want to just ask for it. And so we see these series of her asking uh, the king and Haman to come to supper. Um, so yeah, uh, the tension continues to build. As I, I really like how uh, the writer recorded it in verse eight, uh, when Haman also, or sorry, when Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction. So that's what this is. This is a, a law, a decree that the people of Israel would be destroyed. And uh, that's what they refer to it as. So that's what it is in the outline. So the next, uh, the second part of this is the decree of destru destruction begins to turn on its author. So this is some of the irony of the book is that uh, there's lots of people that are ignorant of knowledge in the book of Esther. And Haman, the kind of the, the key thing he doesn't know is that Mordecai is the queen's uncle. <laughs> and so he's, he's moving forward with full confidence that he's going to wipe out the Jews and be done with them once and for all. And he's so sure of it that he, by the end, will see his pride and arrogance just bubbling out of him. And what he doesn't know is that uh, the queen, who he's so uh, excited to be invited to her dinner party, is going to point at him and say, hey, king, he's trying to kill me. <laughs> and then the king's going to take care of him. So let's keep reading down through here. And uh, we'll see uh, Mordecai encouraging Esther to be brave. Because he sees this as God's providence to place her in a place where God can preserve his people. Uh, so the first subpoint here is Mordecai and Esther decide on a plan. And then more specifically within that, Mordecai warns Esther of the stakes. So remember, she's just learned of this, so she's processing it and they're passing these uh, messages back and forth. So in verse 13, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so I do think that uh, Mordecai here is remembering Yahweh's promises to Israel. That God promised that Abraham's seed will be blessed. That it will flourish. And that um, no one can stop its flourishing. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he mentions uh, some really cool things. This is the... 14 is probably the most well-known verse from Esther. And he's warning her that even if she keeps silent, um, God will save the people. But this is your opportunity to trust uh, the love of God towards us as his people and to step forward bravely and do something really hard and risk your life. Uh, you know, the ultimate stakes, so to speak, is... Uh, you think you might escape this, being in the king's palace, um, but Mordecai warns her that you will not, and uh, God will 
still work out his plan, kind of despite what you do. Uh, and so that's the first part of this. The second part is Esther decides to appear before the king against the law. Uh, so in verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so we see her, uh, the bravery in her, in her speech that she's willing to die, um, that it's, it's worth sacrificing her life for and putting that on the line for her people. She asked Mordecai to gather all the Jews in the city of Shushan, which would have been quite a lot uh, later on in the book when the Jews are given permission to fight back against those trying to kill them. Uh, the Jews in the city of Shushan kill 300 people. So there's at least enough uh, eventually to fight back and defend themselves against 300 attackers. And so all of these Jews gather together and uh, prepare to uh, see how it goes with Esther entering. Something that happens twice in the next couple verses uh, that's really interesting is there's a couple additions in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Um, so these are not original uh, scriptural things. These are things that were added by a scribe at some point later on. So I recorded those in the back of your notes. Uh, these look... Uh, very highly upon uh, the people here in Shushan that they're uh, so so it records them praying and asking God for help and that does not seem to be the tenor of the book as a whole uh, so let's just look at that for a second so if you turn in your notes down to where it says Septuagint editions uh, so they, they have the same verse 17 as us. So verse 17 says, So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. And then there's all the way down, A, B, C, D, all the way down to Z, editions uh, of verses uh, that you can see there. So I think this, is, uh, this has casted a light upon the book that is not original. And so let's just read through it. And it's uh, interesting to think through this perspective. So I do not believe that this is uh, inspired biblical. This was added later on. That's why it's not in our Bibles. So you might have a note at the bottom that says this, was, this is in the Septuagint. So it's just a translation. So it'd be like the New King James is a translation of the Greek text. Well, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. So, some guy somewhere added in what we're going to read. Uh, so, starting in 17a, <clears throat> this is Mordecai. And he besought the Lord, making mention of all the works of the Lord. And he said, Lord God, King, ruling over all, for all things are in thy power. And there is no one that shall oppose thee in thy purpose to save Israel. So, these are the things we want Mordecai to say. <laughs> But they're not the things he says. So I think this is a Jewish person later on in history 
looking back and trying to uh, make Mordecai look better than the original author made him look. So that's my opinion. Um, but these are the things we see, uh, like said at the beginning of Ezra with Zerubbabel and later on in Ezra with Ezra himself. And so we won't read all of this, but all the way down through it, he, he just talks to the Lord and it obviously doesn't fit into the rest of the book because it's, it's just way different. It's not even close to being the same thing. So this is going to come up again um, just at the start here of chapter 5. You can see on your last page, uh, letter B. So these are additions to verses 1 and 2. So I bolded the parts that are in our Bible, and then the additions in the Greek Septuagint um, are not bolded. And so, <clears throat> so at the end of, seven, uh, at the end of chapter 4 is Mordecai's prayer, and at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Septuagint is Esther's prayer. And so, again, I think these are just both uh, not scriptural. They're not inspired by God and uh, are kind of fun to look at, but they're, they're overly dramatic and they don't match the tenor of the inspired portion of the book. And then it's also helpful to know that the Apocrypha adds uh, seven chapters to the end of Esther that's similar to this. So there's been a lot of tweaking that has gone on uh, incorrectly to the book of Esther throughout history that I think has cast it in a good light and I don't think the original author cast it in a good light which is why people went back and tried to add commentary to say see look how good they were <laughs> so uh, if that's helpful that's great uh, it's kind of fun to read through if you want to uh, so as we get into chapter 5 here, uh, we'll see that Esther finds favor from the king um, in her law-breaking. So remember, she's been fasting for three days and three nights, and she's coming out of that, and so she probably doesn't look well. Uh, you know, if you're thinking of, I want to be the most presentable that I can be to the king so that he might grant my request to save my people, um, fasting for three days is not the best idea. <laughs> but it, it works out, and she did it. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So I think she is wise, and she puts on her royal robes, and uh, she comes before him. Uh, yeah, after fasting and asking her people to fast. And then in verse 2, So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So this is great news for Esther. This has got to be a huge relief after I'm sure she was stressing about it for three days. Um, I don't know if you've ever had like a public speaking opportunity that you were just like dreading. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it gets easier over time, but maybe it's something like that when you were, you know, in high school, you had to give a speech or I don't know what it was, but, but you just like dread it all the way up to it. And then when it's over, it's like, ah, oh, like nobody threw anything at me and we made it. 
<clears throat> and so here she is. The king puts out his golden scepter to her. And so she comes near to him and touches the top of it. So she receives favor. And uh, this is a huge deal. I think knowing that this was the law of the king, that the, the automatic thing was to kill them. That, that was the inclination of the Persian government was if someone came before me, you kill them unless I put out my scepter. And so for him to do that is a favorable act. And uh, we see it, it, we'll see in our application in Proverbs that God, the heart of the king is like water in the hands of the Lord. He, he can do whatever he wants. And so right now his people... Uh, need to be delivered, and he chooses to do that through Esther, and uh, the king favorably looks upon her. So yeah, as we look through chapter 4 and the beginning of 5, does anyone have any thoughts or questions or anything? A trivia question. Yeah. In chapter 4, this Hatak, you know, was the courier between them. Yeah. But in verse 12, it says, they... And then in the subsequent verses, it says, they, 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 uh, and them. Mm -hmm. So, I'm just kind of curious if, right. if he had any uh, knowledge of that. Um, maybe he started alone and the news was so big he needed to Right, it kept passing. <laughs> somebody. Mm -hmm. So, I know in verse 13, it's italicized in the New King James, yeah. Yeah. which uh, means it's put in there either by inference from the text. It's not directly in the Hebrew. But um, it's in 12. Is it in 12 too? Yeah, but it's not italicized. Perfect. Yeah, so my guess is that, you know, when you're the queen and then you have like your main attendant, that he probably has attendants. Mm -hmm. And so he probably also didn't travel alone. Mm -hmm. So like Esther, I, it's a, yeah, I don't know if when she appeared before the king, if she was by herself. Because I'm guessing, as any royalty or close to the royalty, you never went anywhere by yourself. Yeah. You know, there was kind of a crowd of helpers that went with you everywhere. So my guess is that Thak <laughs> uh, had lots of helpers too. And so they would have been there as well. Yeah, good question. Right. Yeah, it's that's a great question. I don't think it's that necessarily. I think it could be. The tricky part is that the Septuagint is a translation. Um, so there would have been copies of the Hebrew, but at some point, I don't remember exactly when the Septuagint was written. It's probably during that silence period of 400 years. But it's the Bible Jesus uses in his lifetime. So when he quotes scripture, he's quoting the Septuagint um, because that was the, the common language was Greek in his day. Um, but he, I mean, he knew Aramaic and Hebrew as well. But yeah, it's only in the Septuagint, which does not have great support for it being original because um, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and for 
hundreds of years from this point, it would have been Hebrew. So it's, it's strange that it's only in Greek, if that makes sense. You know, if they would have found one copy of it in Hebrew, that would have been something. But for a translation to be, to add things, <laughs> does not bode well for it being uh, original. So, yeah, so I don't want to discourage anyone. The, this is the Word of God. Our, our Bibles um, are truly God's Word. And there's, a, there's whole processes that help us to know what the originals were that God inspired. So in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, at the end of chapter 3, it talks about how all Scripture is God-breathed. And the word there for Scripture is graphe, which means writing. And so I think it's actually talking about the original documents that uh, the men wrote the Scripture on. So as they wrote those originals... Uh, those were inspired by God. And ours are inspired to the degree that they match the originals. And so that's why you have things down in the notes that say, like, this is found in this text, but not this text. And that's why, like, in the book of John, there's several times where there's things in brackets that say it's not in these manuscripts, but it's in these. And so we don't have the originals today. And I don't think that's a point of discouragement to us. I think if we had them, we'd worship them. You know, we'd put them somewhere and it'd be a pilgrimage to go look at the originals. Um, it would be helpful in some senses, but uh, God has preserved his word through multitudes of manuscripts that match the originals. And so we're good to go. Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls helped a lot, especially with the New Testament. <clears throat> so uh, the Testaments are a little different because the New Testament we have like 6,000 copies. <laughs> and so there's, uh, yeah, that's a lot. And uh, the Old Testament, uh, you've probably heard about how they would copy down uh, the Old Testament. They would very meticulously check each letter. And in the, the, the Hebrew text, they would count how many letters, it's the other way, they would count how many letters there were in a chapter and after they got done writing the chapter, it's, they didn't have chapters, but a section, they'd go through and they'd count. And if it was, if it was off, they'd burn the thing or, or put, you know, put it away. And so they were very meticulous about making sure it was exact. And uh, so, yeah, uh, God preserved his word for us and it's super helpful. Does anybody have any questions on any of that stuff? Kind of like a whole new world under a rock that you're like, oh no, I don't know anything about that. But it's really fun. Okay, let's go to verse 3. <clears throat> and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Wow. You know, she couldn't have asked for a better response from the king, you know, with what she has on her mind to come and talk about. Uh, so, you know, we're expecting her to, to throw it out there. Um, but in verse 4, she says, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So, this is the first we hear about this. So, we don't know if, like, in her fear, she, like, made this up. Or if she wanted to be more private. And so, she already had this prepared. 
ahead of time. The way she, she says it, it sounds like this was the plan and she had a meal prepared to bring them to. Uh, verse 5, Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my, peti my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she, she gets them there, you know, all according to plan. And then I think she kind of chickens out a little bit here and uh, doesn't do her request uh, right now. And so she invites them again to come to a banquet. And uh, she, she just wasn't quite ready to do it there. <clears throat> and so the next section is um, Haman's pride goes before his destruction. So we kind of break off from Esther, and this is part of the tension here, is she kind of chickened out there, and the question is, will she actually do it tomorrow? Will, will she tell the king what's going on and that her people are in danger at the next meal? So we kind of leave her right there, and we flash over to Haman, and uh, this is where we get a fun look into his life. And... Uh, he's the one that kind of instigated all this, and it's cool how it kind of backfires on him <laughs> uh, from a good guy perspective. Um, so he doesn't make it through the whole story, just to break that to you. But uh, as he goes through here, he's so obsessed with his hatred for Mordecai that he is just not enjoying life. He's second in the kingdom, and he hates it. He hates, he hates his life. Mordecai's uh, in the way of everything that's happy to him. And so let's read down through this and uh, look at Haman. So Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart. So he's just been invited to dinner with the king and queen. He's going to go back tomorrow and have another supper with them. Uh, you know, he's, he's on top of the world. Number two in the kingdom. The queen and, king and queen love him. Uh, he's got everything he needs. And he has a plan in place to get rid of Mordecai. But as we read through here, we'll see that that's not fast enough for him. He hates Mordecai so much that he needs to get rid of him yesterday. So, middle of verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of this of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Let all, yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So you can just see that he's obsessed with getting rid of Mordecai. His, his hatred for him uh, is just more than he can bear. 
He's, he's so focused on uh, his hatred for Mordecai that he's just lost sight of all of these really great things that have come into his life. Uh, he has a wife, lots of children, lots of money. Uh, he's high up in the kingdom. And none of that means anything to him because he's so uh, disgusted with Mordecai. <clears throat> in verse 14, uh, so this is his wife trying to help him, that if Mordecai is such a problem, well, then just get rid of him. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Uh, so yeah, a few things going on here. Uh, Haman's joy is crushed by Mordecai's disrespect. So as he comes out of this banquet on top of the world, uh, there's good old Mordecai, still not being afraid of him, still not bowing down to him, and he can't stand that. And so he goes home and tells everyone how amazing he is uh, and how great his life is. And then he shares that he just, none, none of that is worth anything as long as Mordecai is still breathing. And so his wife suggests, well, why don't you take out Mordecai early? So remember, this whole plan to kill all the Jewish people is to get rid of Mordecai. And Haman can't wait the year or wherever we're at in the timeline now for that to come into action. And so he's like, let's just get rid of him now. And so if you know the story, it's quite comical because uh, Haman goes into the king the next day uh, asking if he can kill Mordecai and expecting to have that wish granted. And the king's like, hey, you should go honor Mordecai. <laughs> and so it's just this awesome, like, just funny moment where, uh, yeah, he kind of gets... Uh, it's the beginning of his fall from his pride. So Haman, Haman's pride goes before his destruction. So kind of a fun way that I thought to look at this is there's things in our life that we, we look at so intently. Um, so how did I say that? I, oh, I think it's in the application. That, that Haman loves his hatred of Mordecai so much that he just lose, loses sight of everything. And that's the same way we are. It can be with pride. It can be with stuff. So I got a $5 bill here. That sometimes we, we love things so much that like we just stop seeing the world. We're just, you know, we're looking around and all we see is that thing that I want or like Haman, that person that's in the way, um, whatever it might be. When we love something so much, we, that's all we can see. It, it dominates our thoughts. Um, it dominates our decisions. Uh, it leads us away from trusting the Lord. Uh, so let's look at a few uh, application things together. <clears throat> uh, so the first two are about God and uh, His faithfulness. So God's promises are greater than our fear. So Genesis 20.11 is uh, the first time Abraham goes to Egypt. And he, he knows his wife, Sarah, is beautiful. And he's concerned that they're going to kill him and take Sarah uh, away from him because uh, they're married. And so he kind of lies and says, she's my sister, which they're, she's his half-sister. But 
he doesn't tell the truth that they're married. And what he says uh, after he decides to do that is he says, there's no fear of God in this place. And so this is Abraham, the, the one to whom God gave the promise and made the covenant with to bless him and to have him have children with this woman. And his concern is about this Egyptian pharaoh in front of him that he doesn't fear God. So how can I trust that I'll be okay going before him? And so uh, the thing to think through there is from Proverbs uh, 20, 1 verse 1. Uh, I'll just turn over there and read it for us. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And I think that's the thing we should have on our mind when we're afraid of other people. I think that's Abraham should have known that as I meet this Pharaoh person, that he's like a river in the hand of the Lord. He can, he can direct it whichever way he wants. And so I don't need to be concerned that there's no fear of the Lord in this man. I need to remember that my God is greater and that his promises uh, will happen. And so I can trust in the face of fear of this individual, this powerful individual, uh, that God will fulfill his promise to me. Uh, the next one there. <clears throat> God chooses to love Israel for the sake of the fathers. So this is from Romans 11.28 um, where it talks about uh, God setting aside um, Israel for a time, but still choosing them. Um, not because they're faithful, not because they deserve it, but because God made promises to the fathers of Israel. And he will keep those promises. <clears throat> um, pride never leads us to the right place. So we see Haman here. He's on top of the world. And... He thinks that, that nothing can stop him. And I think when we're proud, uh, we often have lots of blind spots. Okay, So uh, Haman's blind spot is that uh, he thinks he can't be touched. He thinks because he's second in the kingdom, nothing can stop him. Nothing can get in his way. Right? O only the king could stop me. <laughs> which we'll find out next week, he does. Um, and so our pride uh, leads us to think things that aren't true. Um, and he's also ignorant of uh, Esther and Mordecai being related. And so when we function in our lives on a path of pride, we're going to go where we want to go, and that's not the right place to end up. So the best place to be is in a place of humility before the Lord and to say, I don't know everything. I'm still learning. I need your help. Please lead me. And uh, to go to a place where God is the one that leads us along. We're not thinking we have it all figured out and I know how to get there and I have the money and the power and the friends to do it. Um, but God is the one who will bring me to the place that I need to be as I walk with him and trust him. Um, and then lastly, that idea of the $5 bill. Uh, what you worship controls your vision. So Haman can enjoy all these blessings um, because of his love of hating Mordecai. 
kind of a funny way to say it, but that's really what's happening is Haman has uh, bad loves. He, he has all these great things around him. He has a family. He has, uh, he's successful in the kingdom, in, in leading people. He has everything a Persian man could want for, except being king. That's the only thing he's not. And he's discontent because he hates Mordecai. And so, uh, just remembering that we easily, uh, as people who worship, we easily worship things that shouldn't be worshipped. And that just creates more blind spots. And so, um, it's sad. It's just the way their culture worked. They didn't believe in the one true God and that he should be the one that's worshipped. But as, um, if they were a believing family... I would hope that his wife, Zeresh, would say, you know, honey, <laughs> your hatred for this man is consuming you. you you've lost sight of, of what God wants you to do. You know? But instead, she's like, yeah, kill him. Here's a plan to do it. And so it doesn't help when we just have people around us that don't see our blind spots. We also want people that can help us see those things and we'll lovingly point them out. And, uh, you know, Haman's sprinting down the hill to death, and he has no idea. Um, and that's where pride and worship of ourselves takes us. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.